Welcome to the Launch University Podcast, turning good intentions into reality in your career, business, and life. Here's your host, Kevin Jennings. Hey, everybody, this is Kevin, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Launch University Podcast. You are in for a treat today. You are hanging out with me and one Dara Brustein. She's an entrepreneur, an author, and she believes that the best way to live a life is by design, not by default. So first of all, I think we can all agree with that. And if you don't hang on, you will by the time this is over. Um, And she spent the last decade crafting, integrating her own life and work intentionally and not choosing one over the other, which is another reason why you, anyone who knows me knows I'm a big fan of this thought process. However, she is further along in her journey than I am. So I'm looking forward to sitting at her feet a little bit and getting some information. And the best part about this is, in addition to all of the businesses that she started, she shares what she's learned and offers shortcuts to thousands of people on her website, Dara.co. Now that's D-A-R-R-A-H. So like, so Sarah, but Dara.co. So welcome Sarah to the podcast. Sarah. See, look, Sarah. <laughs> look, I got myself so mixed up. Welcome, Dara. That's funny. Hi, welcome me. Thank you. <laughs> Tilaris. No one's ever actually called me Sarah when I when they've used that little trick. Yeah, so I confuse myself. I'll answer to it. <laughs> that's that's clearly when you know you I get yourself a little tongue tied. So Dara and I have the privilege of connecting because of Ashley Jones. Uh, Ashley is shout the out Ashley. shout out to Ashley Jones and Love Not Lost. Uh, she was a guest on episode 90 of the podcast. So if you have not heard that podcast about turning pain into purpose, you need to go back because her story is definitely one that had me misty in the middle of the interview. She's just such an amazing soul. And so happy to have her introduce me to Dara. And uh, during our brief conversation prior to booking this interview, very quickly, I recognized there was a ton that we could talk about. So I've actually made a list of things I have on hold for future episodes if I do this one well enough and Dara's <laughs> willing to come back. Hopefully I'll impress. But I know this, there's a ton our community can get from you. Um, we serve a lot of executives within organizations and they're, they're emerging executives, they're established executives, but they're really entrepreneurs. They're people who they're just hardwired to build and grow things, but they're doing it within the context of an organization. And I believe there's a lot we can learn from you. So today I want to talk about networking and growing your network, sustaining your network. But I thought we would just start with your story, if that's okay. Anything is okay. All right. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that jumped out to me was that in 2009, you started your first venture with your twin brother, Garrett, and it's called Equitable Payments. But you graduated from college just three years earlier. And I want you know if you would just share some context for that journey, because I thought to myself, okay, out of college, three years later, I'm starting a business with my family member. What's my mindset coming out of college? What was your mindset? Was, it, you know, was entrepreneurship always the dream for you, essentially? Yeah, it's, I'm really glad you asked this and props on your research and knowing his name. I almost never use his name. I just say my twin. So shout out Garrett also. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really glad you asked this because it's for anyone who goes to school or goes, quote unquote, into the real world and doesn't feel like they have a clear direction. I'm here for you. That's exactly where I was. I moved to Atlanta from Baltimore in 2002 to go to Emory. And I decided to study two really translatable things into the career and corporate world, which were religion and Italian. So (laughs) I'm super sarcastic. That was a complete joke. So those are actually what I studied. But as you can imagine, I got a lot of jokes about being the first white Jewish pope because that what else was I going to do with those degrees? (laughs) 
And upon graduating, I felt completely lost and terrified because all of my friends were on these really traditional paths where they had a clear cut and delineated purpose and and way to go ahead of them. They wanted to be doctors and lawyers and traditional corporate folks and primarily consulting. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking, I don't want to do those things and I don't know what I want to do. So I did the only thing that seemed relevant, which was the advice I'd been given of follow your passion. Hmm. And at the ripe age of 22, the thing I knew I was passionate about was fashion, silly as it sounds. So I was able to get a job in wholesale fashion sales, working for a company out of LA. And they made it sound really great. They said, you're going to work out of Atlanta. You get some autonomy. You work from home. You'll do sales on the road. You'll have to hit a million dollar sales goal by year three. And you'll get free clothes and you'll go to these really cool trade shows in LA and Vegas and Miami. And I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. This sounds awesome. So I take the job thinking I've just done like Devil Wears Prada in one foul swoop. And very quickly, I learned how wrong I was and that passion shouldn't always be your job, that sometimes Mm -hmm. it should remain your hobby and that it kind of ruined it for me because two things I was passionate about were travel and fashion. And I was like, great, I get to do both. When actually it ruined both for me because I wasn't learning and growing. I, within 10 months, had hit my million dollar sales goal. So I learned that I was good at sales. But I realized there was no upward trajectory for me at that point. And then even outside of that, I just wasn't on a day-to-day basis learning at all. Hmm. I was literally schlepping goods from one town to another to another and living out of an SUV and two and a half star hotels and going to Carabas alone at night. So it was not the sexy thing that I anticipated. (laughs) And on top of it, the folks in my industry weren't very nice and it was kind Hmm. of catty. And I just felt like, gosh, this seemed very different on paper than it is in practice. And so I got to a point where maybe some of the listeners can relate to this, where I knew I needed a change, but I was comfortable. And I was also young and I didn't know any better. So I kept saying, oh, I'm looking, I'm going to do something else. But there was no momentum or inertia because I was making some money, a little, not a lot. And I was doing a good job and I had it figured out, but I couldn't figure out what to do from there. So as luck would have it, or as at the time it felt like bad luck would have it, When I was about to turn 23, I ended up having to get a restraining order against my landlord and out of fear went and bought a house in September 2007, which as we might remember was the Mm. top of the financial market and not a great time to buy. But you you deal with the cards that you're dealt and you make the best decisions you can with what you know at the time. So did that. And then three months later, I lost this fashion job because the company went under. Wow. And then the economy began to completely fall apart because it's 2008, 2009. So all of a sudden, to your initial question, I'm in this place where I'm feeling completely terrified. I have real adult responsibilities. I'm fearing foreclosing on this house. I haven't made a backup plan. I don't have tremendous savings. So I just start taking other jobs. And I began to work in everything from high-end home audio video sales, selling six and seven figure home theater systems to rich people to being a personal assistant and doing everything from writing her website copy to ripping out drywall and carpeting from her investment properties with her. And you you name it, I was doing it because I was trying to get my head above water financially and because I was trying to figure out what the heck I wanted to do. And this whole like follow your passions thing just didn't seem to work right away. Hmm. And I didn't know what else I was passionate about anyway. So I felt really lost. And through the course of those next two years of doing that jumble of jobs and careers, I kept losing those too because the economy was in full downturn mode. And so at this point, three years have passed 
It's about to be 2009. I've lost job after job, even though I had done well at each of them. And I'm thinking, okay, let's stop for a second and let's question what I have been spoon fed and told my whole life, which was check the boxes, follow the path that everyone's laid out for you, you know, go to school, get good grades, get a job, make it sound sexy and tell people at cocktail parties, get the house, get the hot boyfriend, like do all the things. And frankly, I had done all of them, but none of them were working and I felt unfulfilled and scared all the time. So I thought, well, even though everyone is telling me you're just an impatient millennial who can't wait her turn, you know, climb the ladder. I knew that they were wrong because to what you asked me before, Kevin, I always knew I wanted to have a business. I didn't know the term entrepreneur when I was growing up, but I was the kid selling stuff off of my front porch to my parents' friends, probably much to their chagrin. And I had always had an interest in it, but I didn't have an idea. And I also was listening to what everyone was telling me that I was just impatient and had to wait my turn. So through those situations, I came to realize that there is no more or less stability in working for someone else than there is for myself. Wow. So I took the reins into my own hands and teamed up with my brother. First of all, yeah, there's a, there's a ton there. Wow. I think that, yeah, there's so much. I, I hope that everyone's listening. I think that everyone's story is just so different, but then there's sort of these, these breadcrumbs that just connect all of us. And I think that the power of just having that initial vision of what life was to work should be shattered so early what a gift you totally. know at like, the time it felt devastating but i'm so grateful yeah. for it because i could have very well stayed on that path of comfort and i mean it wasn't even comfortable but like of okay i have a job i have a salary i have benefits let me just stick with it so i'm grateful that my butt got kicked out of the nest yeah and i, and I think that happens for everybody in different obviously different ways but so so with that being said you said you you, you kind of start with your brother but you start something called equitable payments, which I think the average person who is 23, 24 starting a business is like, you know, can I get into credit card merchant <laughs> services? I was like, when I, when I, the more I dug, I was like, man, this is such an interesting story about why did you start this? You know, what, was your brother experiencing something similar in his life that said, okay, I'm in a similar state that made him say, I, I want to try something as well. Uh, what is equitable, equitable payments for those who are unfamiliar with the company? Well, equitable payments is a credit card processing brokerage, and that still probably doesn't mean a lot to most people. Basically means anytime you go to a business and as a customer, you pay with a credit card, whether it's online, by phone, or in person, there is a company that sets up the hardware and the software for them to be able to take those credit card payments and for them to hit their bank account and for it to get ding on your credit card and do all the things that happen behind the scenes. And that is our company. We do that. The brokerage part is if you think about an insurance broker who says, Aetna is good for Kevin and Blue Cross is good for me and United's good for Garrett, then that's a brokerage. They're sussing the marketplace out to vet what's best for whom. And that had never been represented in credit card processing, hmm. but didn't make a lot of sense because it's a financial services arena and there's brokerage models across all the rest of them. So Garrett came to me, he was living in San Diego in 2008 when he came to me and said, hey, I have this idea. I want to represent brokerage models in credit card processing. I've done the legwork. I've done the legal due diligence. I know it's possible. It just hasn't happened. And at first I was like, no, that sounds tremendously boring. I wouldn't have to do that. <laughs> but then I reflected back on how when I worked in the sort of the sexy industry before that in fashion, that that is at the whim of the trends in the market, whereas something like this really underpins how everything else works. And I started to fall in love with the things that make other things operate. Hmm. But also the more important thing is that it helped me see the converse reality to the follow your passion myth, 
which is become passionate about your circumstances, that I realized that the day-to-day of what I'd be doing in that business and working with different business owners across various industries, helping them with their bottom line to reduce the cost they were paying for this critical part of how their business operates and teaching them through that is something I was passionate about. And the other thing was, I went back and did some due diligence with my 90 wholesale or my 90 retail customers from when I was selling the wholesale fashion stuff. And I just asked them, what's your experience been with your credit card processor? And time and again, they told me some story about everyone's shady. They told me something. It never was that thing. I got ripped off. That person wasn't even in the business three months later. And they just kept saying, if someone would be honest and transparent with me, I'd want to give my business to them. And that was a light bulb moment for me because I realized if anything, I am honest to a fault to the point where I'm like, don't do business with me. It's better to do it somewhere else because I want to, I have integrity and I want to be a person of my word. And so I thought, well, if that's a real differentiator here, then I can do that. And I can get passionate about this service because of the day-to-day components and the things that it really takes to make it work on a minute to minute basis versus just being so enamored of the idea that the actual day-to-day like in fashion just wasn't working for me. That's powerful. So one of the the things I wanted to to I was personally curious to to ask was what's the biggest thing you learned about business and about yourself when you started that because I I just keep hearing myself if I didn't necessarily think I was going to be doing this and then three years I'm doing this business with my brother in a market I never thought I was going to be in I just kept thinking to myself she had to be learning so much so quickly um so I just you know take us back a little bit about what you walked away with. I mean, I learned so many things. We've been in this business for 10 years. So taking myself back to the beginning of it, I learned one, the power of choosing a great partner if you choose to have a business partner and how fortunate I was to back into it with my twin. I always joke with him, if you can share a womb, you can share a business. Because (laughs) in our case, we're like pretty typical fraternal twins where we are very different and opposite. So his personality, his proclivities, his strengths, and his weaknesses are all the exact opposite and mirror image to mine, which makes for an incredible partnership, even though ironically, we are not close in like a social setting but we work so well together and it he is the quintessential operator and I'm the quintessential business development kind of growth oriented person and together they work magically also there were plenty of moments in this 10 years where before we went to where we are now where we operate in 38 states we had so many wipeout moments we had two embezzlements we had a moment at 2 years in where we had finally gotten our heads above water financially And we had a whale of a client who consisted of about 80% of our revenue. And out of the blue, he canceled his contract and we went back to 20%, which was devastating because for anyone who's in the moments of building anything, a business or a project or a team or whatever, it's devastating to have put in so much work and finally feel like you got over the hurdle and then it's gone. And so even in those moments, my attitude was a bit defeated, whereas he came to the table and was like, what are we going to do about it? And was just ready to keep it moving. So I definitely learned in the power and importance of vetting and choosing the right partner. For me, obviously, it didn't take a lot of vetting because I've known him since before I was born. But I think that's really important. Another piece that was absolutely critical is to not be beholden to an outcome, meaning it's important to have goals. It's important to have a plan. But you can't white knuckle and hold on to something and expect it to work in the exact way that you think it's going to. It's why I actually don't really love business plans unless you're looking for funding. 
because then you get really attached to the way things are going to work. And in practice, things generally don't work the way that we think they're going to. So going into it, I thought, okay, well, I'll just convert all these 90 retailers who are my clients in the fashion world into my first clients. And while I was able to convert a small portion of them, I really underestimated all the hurdles it would take, the relationships where they had that were tied to their bank loan or that were proprietary to their hardware platform or they their brother-in-law was doing the processing or they had been burned so many times they were afraid to do it again or they believed the BS other people were selling. There was just plenty of reasons or just people don't like change. So not being so attached to that and then Really, I doubled down on the one thing that I believed from the beginning, which is the power of relationships. That if I could build the right referral partnerships, if I could build the right relationships that were based on trust and giving and value centricity, that it would work. It would just be a slower burn and a snowball effect as opposed to kind of the... I am in desperate need. Let me go cold sale everyone. Let me shut my business card in everyone's face. Sort of this like really old school mentality that I was unwilling to do. So I really doubled down on the relationship building piece, which ultimately was the reason it was successful. Well, ironically, my next question has to do with having two years later after you start. So so obviously, you know, what you just walked us all through timeline-wise is happening amongst everything that I'm, I'm about to talk about right now, which is in 2011, you started your next business, uh, Network Under 40. And I listened to a couple interviews you did with other people, and you referred to it as an accidental business. So I personally thought the story was awesome. So would you mind sharing it again with all of us? Yeah, well, thank you. So it's so funny. I really do think of it as an accidental business because as I alluded to, two years into my business, we were still in shambles. Like things weren't going great. So it wasn't a natural time for me to say, yeah, let me divert some of my energy and attention to some other project. But what happened was, is I had a friend move back to Atlanta from law school and she said to me, where do I go to make friends after college? Everywhere I go, I'm getting hit on, sold to. Everyone's my parents' age or they're all in my industry. And I laughed and I was like, honestly, I've spent the last couple of years in the deep in the networking scene in Atlanta building my business. And I can't think of a single place that doesn't hit on at least one of the things you're lamenting. But my favorite thing in the world, and I think the thing I'm most gifted at is connecting people. So I said, why don't I just start something for you? Hmm. And it was not intended to be a business. It was just, let me help my friend and I have the ability and the resources to do it. So I'll do it. And I did. And the first event was March of 2011. We had 94 people, 90 of whom were friends of mine. And the energy was electric and people said, please do this again. And so I did it the next month and they said the same thing. And then it just snowballed to the point where out of nowhere, Inc. Magazine showed up at one of our events and unbeknownst to me, published an article that said something, this is probably an almost direct quote along the lines of networking events suck, but here's one that's doing it well and pointed to mine, my like random event in Atlanta. Hmm. And I was floored. And we started getting inquiries globally saying, how do I do this where I live? And I thought, oh, I guess I'm really onto something here. And so at that point, I had been making some money and it just became this nice side income that I was generating. And I mean, it really had two amazing byproducts for me. One was I was generating leads unexpectedly for my primary business. Two, I was making a healthy side income, which was nice because my first business was still struggling. And I was able to like use that to travel and do things I actually wanted to do rather than just survive. And then three, I was able to make an impact. I was able to connect other people and create an environment for them where they could be themselves. It was organic. It was authentic. It was peer-based. It was about who they were before what they did. Hmm. And that then ripple affected and domino affected into so many great things in our lives. People have told me they've started movements together. They've started businesses. They've gotten $2 million grants. They've made close friendships. They've, I, My friend, it's not a singles event, but they got married because they met at my event. 
So all these incredible things have happened from the fruit of me just doing this thing for my friend. And I think sort of the asterisks or the cliffs notes here is listen and pay attention because when people come to you, they're coming to you because they trust that you have some advice or some skill. And even if it's in your office, if someone's coming to you and they're seeking counsel on something, think about a way that you can find a solution for that. Even if it's a three minute, let me make an introduction for you, because that is where things begin to really grow and take effect and where you don't have to do all the toiling to figure out what do I want to do if you follow the current that is being brought to you. Hmm. So first of all, I want to go ahead and tell everybody who's listening, this was originally going to be a one part interview. I've already decided it's going to be a two parter. So just just hang tight <laughs> with me. Um, I've already broken it up. So the second part's about networking. This is no longer about networking this first half, um, <laughs> ma- mainly because I think there's there's you're hitting on a theme. I think is so powerful and this idea of of leveraging or, or viewing obstacles as opportunities. And I think that wasn't obviously as apparent to me in your story until we until right now. But I mean, this that keeps happening. You know, anything anytime you see an obstacle, you clearly start to look at it at some point as an opportunity and see what's there, even if it doesn't feel like that at the time. Um, but I think it's a pretty powerful lesson that will ground this conversation for all of us. But before, so let me ask you one more question before we talk about networking, uh, and that is, at this point, Equitable Payments is ten years old. You said it earlier. Network Under 40 is eight years old. And so there's a lot of things you've learned about business, people, yourself. And I think that that's the part, the yourself part is really intriguing to me because you right now are sharing some of the lessons you learned on your on, on your website. And would you mind just sharing what you experienced that made you so passionate about intentionally designing your life? Especially coming from a person who just explained to us how much of what she may have accomplished, what she's accomplished to the outside world has been driven by things she could not have designed or planned for. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's pretty intriguing. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad that you noticed that dichotomy because I think that there's a difference. I remarked on this a little bit between having an intention and moving in its direction, which is important. And I recommend even having goals, but then loosely holding on to the way that it manifests and the way that it actually happens and allowing yourself to move away from it if it no longer suits you or the momentum isn't moving in that direction. So an example of this, I wrote a children's book, gosh, what year? I don't know, six years ago on financial literacy education for six to nine-year-olds when I watched the economy fall apart. And I realized this was an epidemic and people needed to learn early, better behaviors and habits. And in my mind, the vision was, this is going to be the baby Einstein of financial literacy. In reality, I spent two years banging my head against a lot of walls, getting to the top of every financial services company and every wealth manager and every bank and then even nonprofits and schools and realizing that there were so many hurdles that were not making this something that was going to come into fruition the way that I expected. So I put it on the back burner. And so on the one hand, I could see it as a bit of a failure, even though people own these books, it's helped a certain amount of people But it was a failure in my mind in the sense that it never got to be the thing that I wanted it to be. But when I look at it and I realize that even me going down that path, one, there's just learnings. And then two, it brought me to places like it brought me to Davos with the World Economic Forum to represent on youth financial literacy. It brought me to Israel to go on a trip for social entrepreneurs. Like it had me in all of these arenas 
because I just followed this thing that I felt passionate about doing and felt like was a resource and help to other people without asking a lot of questions. And because of those, other opportunities arose. And so there is this distinction and this sort of teeter-totter between having the intention and having the plan and then letting things unfold how they naturally need to. And so I have a series with Deepak Chopra and he and I talk about this like law of effortlessness where he's a great example. I met him in the most effortless of ways and our video series came together in the most effortless of ways. And it wasn't because I had an intention to do a video series with Deepak. I did have an intention to have a show, but it was never specific about him. And then out of the blue, out of nowhere, it came up and then happened within a two week turnaround. Hmm. And so that's sort of the interesting way that I see it, that you can have a goal, you can have a vision, but you can't hold so tightly and steadfastly to it that you're actually missing what is best for you. Mm. And sometimes they're the same, but they're not always. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and so with that being said, was there a moment for you in your journey where where that aha moment hit for you particularly? Because I mean, I'm thinking to myself, wow, Dara's doing such a good job of responding to what's happening, right? And so, but to the outside world, you could say, well, obviously you were killing it in your jobs, right? So, I mean, that's that's a common thing amongst many of our listeners. Well, they're, they're going to, ambition and hard work are not usually the issue. But I am interested because of that, you know, most of these people, people like yourself and myself, I believe as well, have that resolve where you can't make me quit. You know, <laughs> I giving up is like that is the really almost the truest form of like I failed because I gave up. Not I walked away because I wanted to. I just threw my hands and gave up. So I'm yeah. curious to hear like when did that moment happen for you where it hit you? Okay, I need to design this thing and I have to hold it loosely. Well, so I think I've always sort of been that person. I have been a lifelong personal development studier. I've been a lifelong person who's in touch with my intuition. And I've been collecting a lot of this knowledge. But one thing I want to talk about that you just said is the quitting piece. Because I think that there's a false narrative around this. And I think that the way that people need to look at quitting is that there is a way to strategically quit. So for example, when that client left us, two years in and I was literally crying on the bathroom floor and feeling like I couldn't keep going because I was spent. I called my mom and she said, I think you should quit. And I was devastated, already devastated. And I was like, what the hell, mom? Like the last (laughs) thing I need to hear from you is to stop. I needed you to tell me to keep going. And in that moment was when like in our, this is going to sound woo, but like in our bodies, you can feel when you tense to something versus when it feels expansive. And when it feels tensed, is when it's not for you. And sometimes there's some digging. Sometimes that's just your fears and your resistance and your inner critics and insecurities. So you have to know the difference. But in that moment, I tensed. I was like, no, I should keep going. And that then became the fuel for me to keep going because only you know when it's appropriate to quit versus with the book where I didn't fully quit. I actually believe there will be a time where that re-energizes and resurfaces. However, other things, my other businesses had so much more organic momentum that that was the signal and cue for me to keep going and to sort of quit on the other one. And it was strategic. Yes. And it's it's this whole when to say no thing that especially as a woman, I think we are acculturated to and socialized to say yes to a lot and to please a lot of people. And quitting and saying no kind of fall into the same bucket of just different ends of the spectrum where if you say yes to everything, if you keep saying yes to something that's not serving you, you're doing a disservice to anyone else that could be served by what you should actually be doing. 
And this is where I think I recognize a lot of people get stuck where, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are working in companies being entrepreneurs, but they know they're just phoning it in, that they can do this job in their sleep. It's not really serving them or anyone else. But what they're lacking to recognize is that by staying there and staying comfortable and not growing, they're potentially causing harm to the people that they could be positively making an impact on being in in a job somewhere else and having that ripple out there. So strategically quit, know when to say no and when to say yes. And that is on your terms. No one else gets to define that for you. One of the best books I've read on strategic quitting is The Dip by Seth Godin. Mm, I and, love Seth. and I was I was just rereading it earlier this year with my mentor and um, a couple other folks. And it hit so hard. I mean, he just brought up this idea that Vince Lombardi's a liar. You know, that yeah. he, when he said that winners never quit and quitters never win. It's like, actually, winners quit all the time. They just quit all the right totally. stuff. Totally. And, and, and we don't talk about that. They, we don't. And that's what I, that's what I love the distinction of a strategic quitting. That's not even strategic quitting versus giving up, right? I think like you're, and that, I mean, obviously, well-meaning, your mother encouraged you to give up. And I think, yeah. and I think, but that's because I think quitting even still implies some level of personal agency. I've decided that I no longer going to do this. Yep. You know, um, versus one kind of implies that, you know, you just kind of give it, throwing the towel in. So last question before we, uh, actually, before you go yeah, to it, I'm going to interrupt please. you if that's okay. Interrupt me. There's something else I want to say about this, like failing and quitting thing. And it's that I've really recognized a couple of things. One is that when we think about failure, we often see it as this like weird cul-de-sac at the end of a journey when really it's not. It's a pivot point on the roadmap taking you in another direction. And that the other thing I've kind of recognized is that success truly is on the other side of failure, but that often we stop at the failure and become totally dejected. But if we just look at it as it's not a failure because I'm continuously going and moving, it's just a blip and you keep going and it doesn't matter. The other piece that really held me up, and I'll say it in case it helps anyone else, is this idea that everyone's paying attention and Mm. what are they going to think? It's like, what (laughs) if I quit this job and I've only been there for four months? What if I quit this job and like, this is the sexy business and I had stock options and about to have an IP, like whatever, whatever you think it is. Like for me, it was, what if I fell and fall on my face and this company goes under, is everyone going to judge me and think that I'm a has-been or an idiot? Until I realized that that was super, super narcissistic and that no one is paying that much attention and that if they are, it's because they actually want what's best for you and they're going to be there to help you on the other side of it or to cheer you on. So every once in a while, there are going to be the trolls But that actually means that you're doing something so that someone's paying attention. So I use that as motivation of if I have enough people paying attention that I have trolls, then I must be on the right path. So let me keep going. Otherwise, it's like, who cares? If you have enough time to criticize what I'm doing that's working or not, that's on you. But I'm going to keep going and realizing that it is not the real thing that people are going to be paying attention and criticizing anything that works or doesn't work because they got their own stuff to deal with. Wow. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to add anything to that because I think I'll ruin it. So my, so my my final question in this section will be, and I, I said final question like a while ago. So I, I know everybody, I said it already, but I lied. Um, so why is it so hard for the business leaders, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, executives to intentionally design their lives? And I ask that because I feel like the average person who looks at any entrepreneur or entrepreneur, they're saying, this person's so intentional in at work. I mean, they're 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 focused, they're driven, they're showing up early. They're st- you know now it might just be hustle, but but I am curious. I feel like these people usually look like 
they're doing so many of these practices of intentionality well, but yet once it steps beyond the four walls of work, it's like intentionality sometimes just falls to the wayside. And what have you seen is the, is, is the kind of the disconnect there? Well, it's funny. People often joke that intentional is the drinking word for me because I use it so often. (laughs) And I think it's the thing we've been programmed to walk away from because we live in such a busy, loud culture that it becomes easy. And this is the problem for most people is to just go where the current is taking you, not in the sense of flow and ease like I was talking about, but in the sense of the world and society is telling me to walk this path. This is what people are celebrating. This is keeping up with the Joneses and the Kardashians. This is the American dream. This is the checking the boxes. So you're doing it and it's technically working. So why would you like veer from that? So I really challenge people to consider, have you intentionally chosen everything in your life? Have you intentionally chosen your job, your city, your house, the people you surround yourself with, how you intend spend all of your time, what you ingest, like both food and content. Are these things that just are like happening to you and you're just letting them happen subliminally or you're almost the in the passenger seat of your own car of your life? Or are you actively driving the car? Are you actively writing the chapters of the story of your life? Hmm. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, very infrequently are we actively doing those things. And so for me, when it came to that three years of getting laid off over and over again, and even in those first couple of years of growing my businesses, when I got super burned out and di- and very much bought into like the Gary V hustle grind burnout culture, I was like, screw this. This isn't working. Why am I li- like living to work and killing myself? I'm going to question this and I'm going to do it differently. And so I think really the bottom line is question stuff. If it's not serving you, Think about another way to approach it. And that's where the intentional design comes in. I recently sat down with a new friend who works at BlackRock, which is a gigantic global financial firm. And he sat down and he's like, honestly, your content helps me so much because he's like, I haven't intentionally designed shit in my career. And now I'm at a point where I have a young family and I'm trying to get it all figured out. And I don't feel like I'm living my purpose and I don't feel fulfilled. And I gave him a number of exercises to help him identify, like, what is he really good at? What does he really want to do? What purpose does he want to serve? What service does he want to offer in this world? What does he give a damn about? What makes him jealous in this life? Because that's a cue that he wants it for himself. Like, just Mm. some of these little things that we can stop and assess for ourselves. One thing that I suggest, I don't know if you have show notes, but if you do, put it in there. It's a Forbes article I wrote called The Nine Questions to Ask Your Network to Help You Find Your Path. And it's an exercise where I recommend you ask 10 to 20 people over email, non-reciprocally, to answer these nine questions that'll help reflect on your blind spots for you or the things that you maybe take for granted about yourself because they come so naturally. So questions like, when do you see me as my most powerful and least powerful? When the chips are down, what do you come to me for? What's something you'd wish for me in the next 12 months? What's something you know about me that you don't think I know about myself? And a number of others. And the purpose is to go and then suss out and pull out a couple patterns or surprises because they can be really helpful for you in designing intentionally these next steps for yourself in any arena of your life. So for me, when I did this at 23 for the first time, so 12 years ago, The thing that really came out for me was this idea of your connector and your ability to connect people helps elevate the outcomes for everyone. And you see the world as this puzzle that no one else can see. Like there's this, it's invisible to us, but so clear to you. And I never thought that was a skill. I was like, everyone can make an introduction. Everyone Mm. can see that Kevin should meet Ashley or in my case that I should meet Kevin because of Ashley. 
yet I realized, oh, this really is your superpower and people really come to you for this. And this is something you need to build on. And I probably would have just continued to eschew it and put it to the wayside for a long time were it not for people helping reflect that back on me that early in my life. And speaking of early, there is never a too late. Like there's a lot of people who have gravitated towards all the content that I create who are 70 and 80 and are like, I don't want to go and not have done some of this and been more intentional. So it is never too late. That's awesome. Well, first of all, Dara, I'm very grateful for you hanging tight with me while we uh, record a second part of this conversation. I know you have a lot of resources, actually, but I mean, about all of this, really, um, when it comes to thinking through your business, but also thinking through how you design your life. So how can people connect with you, get more insight from you, especially on this topic? Yeah. I mean, if you want that Forbes article on asking your network questions, if you want a free masterclass on living a more meaningful and fulfilled life with myself and Deepak Chopra or a number of other free resources, those are all at dara.co, D-A-R-R-A-H.co. And additionally, I show up on Instagram every day trying to add value both with inspiration and activational, it's not even a word, activational tools and resources for people. And I'm at Dara B there. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Launch University podcast. It has been a pleasure to spend time with Dara and with you. Um, We understand that you have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts. And so we don't take your time lightly. But we also know this, and that is great leaders, executives who want to make a difference in their organizations and in the world, they automate their growth. They recognize that there's always going to be something in the way of their development. So they subscribe to podcasts like these to make sure that they can just turn their phone on and have it show up where they to meet them where they are. So we want to invite you and we ask you to subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating, a review, share it with a friend, and check out our show notes. So if you go to launchuniversity.com, that's yuuniversity.com, we have everything you need here. So if you've been driving, working out, in a carpool line. We don't care. We've done all that for you. You can get a lot of the incredible quotes that Dara told you, a lot of the takeaways, links to the article, all on the website. And then we want you to join us on part two. We jump into one of her other ninja skills, which is networking. All right. So join us next time and take care. Thanks for listening to the Launch University podcast. We hope it's helped you move from go-getter to difference maker. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more helpful resources, visit launchuniversity.com.